When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's part four of four of the Nerdy V10 special, and we are joined by friend of the Formula Nerds, the one and only Jan Magnussen. Goodman, and you're listening to the fantastic Cut to the Race podcast. Hello, my name is Ron and you're listening to the Formula Nerds podcast. Hi, I'm Rosanna Tennant, and you are listening to the incredible Cut to the Race podcast. Hi, I'm Jordan King, and you're listening to the Formula Nerds podcast. Hi, I'm Crofty. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out, and away we go! Hello, and welcome to Nerdy V10s, the show where we talk anything and everything to do with the classic eras of Formula One. We've got a special treat for you today. We're, we're talking to a driver from the 1990s. I'm delighted to say we are joined by the wonderful Jan Magnussen. Jan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And thanks for having me on. No problem at all. Thank you for coming on. I'm also delighted to say we're joined by the wonderful James McKenzie. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Uh, I don't know if I earned wonderful quite as much as uh, our guest today, but I'll, I'll take it. Thanks, James. Oh, no worries. So just before we get started, Jan, I have to ask the question, how did you get on in the Gulf uh, 12 hours endurance with Kevin? Because uh, you know, I know you were both looking forward to that quite a lot. How did you get? Yeah. How did you get? Well, it was a good race. Uh, we didn't quite get the uh, the result that we wanted. Uh, we we had some issues, but um, now it's fant- it's fantastic racing with Kevin and uh, you know getting getting pushed like that because man, he's irritatingly fast. <laughs> so, uh, but. Uh, no, it was a fantastic experience and, uh, you know, a privilege that I, I that I get to do these things with him uh, while he's a Formula One driver and, uh, you know, he's... Uh, so, uh, yeah, big thanks to uh, MDK, uh, Mark Kwame, for, for, for making all that happen and, uh, and we'll do it again in January at Daytona for the 24-hour. Oh, really exciting stuff and he, he gets his genes from his dad, so that's, that's why he's so fast. Um, <laughs> What I tend to do at this point is I'll be I'll just going to give what I call a, a this is your life summary of your of your career in Formula One. So forgive me for this, but uh, you had a one off test for McLaren in 1994. You then became a test driver in 1995, including a race debut, which we'll get to. You stayed at McLaren for 1996 before you went off to Stewart for 1997 and into 1998. Yeah. So you had a you had a really strong junior career, which attracted the attention of McLaren. Yeah. Um, you secured that test back in October 1994. What were your emotions as you got into the garage and you saw the the iconic red and white livery, the team around the, the McLaren on the on the car itself? What was it like getting into that uh, that, that garage the first time? Well, I, you know, uh, for, for me, it was an absolute dream come true. Uh, I'd grown up uh, watching uh, Prost and Senna and uh, the Marlboro McLaren cars. 
um, when uh, when that suddenly became an option for me, my, my Formula Three season was fantastic, and it gave me lots of opportunities. And, and luckily, one of them was uh, from McLaren that uh, that wanted to test me, and then uh, hopefully offer me something afterwards. So, uh, so that the, the the test in '94 in uh, in Estoril was an absolute dream come true, and you know it was the first time that. Uh, uh, that I realized that this this may actually happen. It was, wasn't just a dream anymore. So uh, now it's other than you know that I wasn't physically prepared for what was coming. Uh, all of it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, if you had your choice of any team, if it had been totally down to you, would it still have been McLaren, or was that just? Yes. Sort of, yeah, well, there you go. That's yeah, yeah. perfect. Then, because there were other offers with the with the Formula Three Championship came uh, uh, the, the champion one uh, test with Williams, which I turned down because it was McLaren for me. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, I mean, and Williams wasn't exactly a bad seat at that point either. Oh no, that was a really good place. But for me, it was the, that Marlboro McLaren was uh, just uh, iconic for me. Obviously, Senna and all. The heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so once you're there, uh, you became the official test driver in 95 and you were at that launch with uh, Nigel Mansell and Mika Hakkinen. Um, yeah. What were your thoughts at the launch? Uh, it was quite a radical car, wasn't it? The, the MP410. Um, yeah, the 95 car was, uh, I, don't, I won't say ugly, but it was the exact opposite of beautiful. <laughs> so it, it looked weird with the wing in the middle. And uh, yeah, the, also immediately there was issues for Nigel, couldn't fit in the car. And um, uh, it, it, it was a problem car, I would say. Uh, it's the first, first attempt with Mercedes. Uh, so, um, first attempt, uh, or the first year with the Mercedes partnership, uh, and the, 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 yeah, the car, the car wasn't great and it was, they were having issues with it the whole year, but, uh, but I still got to test and, I, you know, it was the beginning of my career as a test driver. Um, uh, I didn't get quite enough testing I thought uh, uh, Mika in particular was difficult to get out of the car and when, whenever there was testing Mika was doing it so um, yeah so I didn't get uh, the amount of testing that, that, that I wanted but uh, sure was interesting times well on that we do have a bit of a surprise for you Jan if I'm honest um, we do actually have a picture of <laughs> the test of the launch of the MP410 with you and Nigel and Mika together. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about some of the emotions behind this picture? Obviously, I know it's for the, it was for the press for the launch. You can see you can see parts of the car behind. It, it, for me, the MP410 was a bit like the shark fin concept now, but as you said, they just put a really weird wing on the on the on the on the on the uh, middle of it. Yeah. What was it like being at that launch and be, having Nigel Mansell in the, in the team? I know you said he couldn't fit in the car, and uh, it, they obviously he departed. But what was the, the the atmosphere like when they brought Nigel in, and uh, how did the team atmosphere progress as as the, as the season progressed on? The way I remember it was uh, it, it was good that uh, I, I think it actually how I remember was that I don't know that this was Ron's wish 
uh, maybe there was uh, some politics going around um, that that made all this happen. But for me, it was fantastic, you know, to be there with uh, Nigel Mansell, who was also one of the guys that I, you know, was looking up to, uh, grew up watching. Um, so for me, it was just really fantastic. And uh, I think at that launch, actually, he had a yeah, I had a broken hand or a broken foot because it gone through some karate, I don't know, test. <laughs> he broke his hand on a wooden board or something. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I seem to remember something about the black belt or something. Yeah. That's, that's going to be one of the more unusual stories we've had. <laughs> <laughs> Being at a launch with something with a broken hand. Yeah, it was either that or a broken foot or something. He tried to break up something. It didn't work. Well, enjoy that picture. But uh, yeah, we, we, we saw that and thought I, de- well, I definitely had to share that. And uh, yeah, just a sign of time's yeah. gone by. <laughs> yeah. when, uh, when Nigel couldn't fit in the car... Uh, we obviously you were there at the time, not necessarily next to him as he was trying to get in the car. But uh, did you think that that could open up into immediately being uh, a, a seat in the team for you? Um, I, I remember hoping that something like that could uh, could happen. But Ron was pretty uh, adamant that I wasn't ready because at that time I still didn't get any laps in the car. They had issues, so they were testing with their own drivers. They were testing particularly with with Mika, but also. They were struggling with uh, with Nigel uh, because he was so uncomfortable in the car he couldn't drive, um, and uh, so I didn't get most of the stuff I did that year until they made a change. Was uh, some straight line testing, and I was present at the uh, at the tests, uh, but there was nothing that indicated that. I was next in line if something happened because nothing was being done for to to get me ready. Uh, so, so it wasn't. I, I didn't feel that I was uh, uh, that they, you know, that they looked at me and and chose not to go that way. It, it, it was never like that. It was just it, it, I didn't feel it's going to be my shot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure. And obviously, you did eventually get the, a call up towards the end of '95 uh, yeah. to race in Ada. Yeah, uh, and that was the uh, to replace Mika had appendicitis, I think, uh, yeah. which, funnily yeah. enough, was obviously the the reason that Nick DeVries got his exactly. chance this year. So, it's, yeah. yeah, strange coincidence. But I mean, I was actually going to ask if you felt fully prepared because I know people talk about how much less testing the drivers get these days. But you're you're saying yeah. that because you couldn't get Mika out of the car, you yeah. didn't actually have that much yourself. Did you? When it got to it, did you feel prepared ahead of the actual the, the race weekend itself? Not 100% prepared. Uh, one thing, I was only told about it the Sunday before. So uh, I was racing in Hockenheim in DTM at the final race of the season. And at the, being on the grid, uh, I was standing there on the grid before the race was starting. Uh, Ron came up to me and uh, just stood there with me for a little while. And then out of the blue, asks me, you know, if, well, he says, so do you think you can handle a Formula One race next weekend? And I didn't really, I said yes, because I didn't know what the yeah. hell he was <laughs> You're not going to say no to that. <laughs> no, no, no. And then he just uh, slapped me on the back and said, good luck with the race. And then he walked off. And um, after the race, then I was told by KK Rosberg, actually, who I was racing against in DTM at, uh, at that race. And he came up to me and uh, and then he informed me that there was a problem with Mika and... Uh, I should go pack my bags because I was going to Japan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but uh, in terms of preparedness, 
at the, the longest run I've had in a Formula One, you know, continuous run was four laps. Uh, of wow. The testing I had done was was really short runs, uh, getting prepared. Uh, it was more a test of me, I think, at the time. Sometimes I would get to test some some uh, new parts, but it was more my feedback that they were looking at uh, if it matched Mika's when we were testing. Uh, so, but I'd never done a start or a pit stop or any of that stuff. So I had to practice that on Monday, uh, that following Monday uh, at Silverstone. So we went there and did pit stops and uh, and starts, and then off to Japan. So uh, I won't say I was super prepared. Uh, the race in Japan was 81 laps. Uh, that's a lot more than four. So, so I was really uh, I was anxious to know if my physical uh, state was good enough if I was strong enough to do the race uh, which it turned out I was uh, I had a good race going and I, I wasn't it wasn't like my neck gave up after four laps so uh, I was but I wasn't prepared no I mean you, you drove the MP410 at Aida you drove the MP49 which also wasn't it also it was a it was a decent car, I think, with an underpowered engine. What for you was the biggest difference between those two cars? Which one felt better? Because they weren't. It was the time when McLaren started to go into the, the midfield a little bit before they came back in the late nineties. Yeah. Uh, so the first test I did was with the Peugeot, uh, the three and a half liter, and uh, that was that felt like uh, much more drivable. Uh, I think the Mercedes engine, the, the gear after. Obviously, it was at the very early stage or earlier stage of the. Well, it was the first three liter, so I think I don't remember it being difficult to drive as such. It just the lap times just went fast. I'm not. I can't remember if we were if it was a power issue or if it was a you know engine drivability or just the car being bad. Um, but I thought the, my first test in Estoril with the pusher powered McLaren. That overall, at the end of the day, I felt much more at one with the car than I at any point I did with uh, following the uh, the next year. So I'll, I'll put that down to being that there was a better package, sort of for driving wise. Yeah, I think for '95 also there was a downforce reduction. Yeah, you did finally get a full time seat uh, for '97 with yeah. the brand new Stewart team. Yeah. Uh, you'd driven for Jackie before, I think, in the the lower formulas uh, at yeah, some point. Three. Uh, yeah, Formula Three. Yeah. When the when when I got the offer from Jackie Stewart to go uh, to go with them for the for their Formula One uh, team. Uh, for me, it was a super easy choice because I, in my head, I felt like it'll be like going home to something where I was super successful. Um, uh, I thought that, okay, I'll know everybody. Uh, they'll know me. They'll know what I need and what I want. Um, but I had the McLaren contract that I had to get out of somehow. Uh, so I ended up calling uh, Ron Dennis and uh, having a talk to him and told him about this offer. Um which he ended up, you know, he ended up releasing me from the contract so I can go and do this. But he started the conversation saying that he thinks this is a really bad idea. Uh, and he, he listed a bunch of things that, why well, it was a bad idea. Um, but I didn't really pay any attention to it because he ended up letting me go and do what I really wanted. But, you know, as two years later, it turned out he was right on every point. <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't hear that because a uh, young guy is offered a long F1 contract, a uh, dream come true. Are you going to say no? 
Yeah, exactly. And and yeah. there's no way to know how things could go. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. Everyone yeah. at the time was saying that Lewis going to Mercedes was a terrible idea. And obviously, yeah, we all yeah. know how that's worked out. Yeah, um, but yeah, you were going up against uh, Rubens Barrichello, obviously, yeah. as a teammate. So at that point, he was, you know, kind of carrying the weight of Brazil post Senna uh, and the expectation there. And he'd had a pretty impressive start to his career. So were you worried about going up against him or did you not care who was on the other side of the garage? Under, I underestimated Rubens uh, quite a bit, uh, and um, what what I underestimated uh, the most was uh, his experience that that he brought in, and which which was one of the points that Braun actually brought up that that would be a problem for me. Uh, but uh, I felt like I felt secure in the team. It was a long contract; it was a four year contract with a pretty clear plan that. Um, you know, uh, uh, spend a year, the first year, to learn about Formula One. It was a new team. Everybody needed to learn about Formula One, myself included. Then year two, try to get some points. And year three, you know, regular in the points and maybe a podium. And year four was the year to go for wins. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, because of the, I think that whole that the contract gave me a sense of security that was working against me. So I wasn't pushing hard enough because I felt I was following the program that was laid out and the plan. Uh, but being inexperienced and uh, I don't know if I had the right people around me, but uh, uh, I didn't see any of the danger signs uh, early enough when, uh, because Rubens did outperform me in most qualifying. Uh, when we were testing, we were quite equal, but during the Formula One weekends and the pressure that comes with uh, being at the races. Uh, he outperformed me most of the time. and uh, But like I said, I had a long contract. This was part of the plan. I thought uh, I thought I was doing what I was supposed to. Um, so uh, yeah, it was tough. I mean, it was. I mean, your best finish in 97 was P7 over in Monaco, but reliability was a real problem for that Stuart yeah. car. You, I mean, you had four engine failures alone. Uh, as well as other maladies, I think it was twelve out of seventeen rounds that year. So, yeah, but I think I think the twelve out of seventeen is uh, so I got classified twelve. Uh, I think I actually crossed the line. I, th- I think I got the checkered flag only like three times. Yeah, yeah. So you 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 retired twelve out of seventeen rounds, unfortunately, in that year. Is the yeah, but I, yeah, yeah. But but uh, I was classified in some in some more races because the engine failed on the last lap or something. Oh no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was bad. Yeah. But how how did you keep your motivation up during that unlucky streak when it was when it was happening? Um, obviously, I got uh, I felt the pressure and I felt I was irritated that because we were it's not like we only had failures when we were racing when we were testing as well we never got any test miles in because the engine blew up so often. Um, so uh, I, it was only at the end of the season is from uh, yes mid or after the summer break really that uh, that I felt comfortable in the car and I felt like I was now I could perform uh, now yeah I felt as one with the car and I could do some stuff um, uh, whereas you know I had, had had we had proper testing and got all the laps in and testing. Uh, I could have probably gotten to that point a lot earlier, but uh, it just happened late. And with Ruben's experience, he was much more ready for a situation like that and, uh, and took advantage of that uh, as you would. Yeah. And 
And then you say about the the full year plan or how however long they were exactly planning for the team, but yeah. it didn't really go to plan in '98. There was it was maybe a bit of a step back. Uh, you finally did manage to score the the elusive point in Canada, but then lost your seat to Jos Verstappen. Uh, yeah. I mean, he came in and had exactly the same issues, plenty yeah. more retirements again. So, I mean, what where was your head at at that point? Uh, watching from the sidelines. Uh, so the way it all ended uh, was a big, big blow for me uh, personally. Uh, going from you know uh, uh, being a Formula One driver, thinking you know that that, that was going to be a, a part of my future, to so suddenly in right in the middle of the season uh, getting uh, fired, <coughs> dumped, uh, was uh, was a huge blow both. You know, professionally, but also personally, and uh, I had a few months there when I was, when I was really, really, you know, evaluating my uh, my life, and my choices, and whether to carry on in motorsports or not. It was it was a tough time uh, those months after after it all happened. Um, but uh, yeah, but then I got an opportunity to go to America and, uh, and with sports car racing, um, and that turned out great. I mean, the, the quick question I would have as well on that one is, what? Why do you think the, the Stewart team struggles so much with that second car to get to get? Because as you say, Jos Verstappen struggled with it as well. What, what what was it about that second car? They just they just the team could not get uh, right for both for both drivers. Um, so year one, we had huge engine issues, um, and. Yeah, one we had, we were struggling with, because that was been, uh, Bridgestone just came in, so there was a tire walk going on. There's a lot more grip and a lot more load. Uh, so we were also breaking uprights and stuff like that in year one. It was not just the engine. Uh, year two came the the uh, uh, groove tires in 98. And uh, now the engine was pretty reliable, but the car wasn't great. Uh, plus, they had gone with this uh, carbon fiber uh, casing gearbox, which was horrible, which was not working at all. Um, so we still had retirements, but now the car was slow. I think yeah, one car was actually a good car, but they also had a lot of time to do that. They c- could focus on that only where for the second car, they were racing while developing a new car. I think that was you know, just a, too much. So they couldn't put, put put in the amount of time that that car needed. Uh, it was super difficult to drive. Uh, I put it down to, you know, to, that that it was just the, the groove tires that was the, the the big issue for me to drive the car. But there were that there were other stuff. The engine was, uh, you know, the drivability of the engine was was difficult, and we we could never use the full revs. <clears throat> of the engine, not even in year two, because uh, as soon as we used, uh, I think it was, I think it was actually a pretty powerful engine at sixteen thousand five hundred RPMs. Um, but the problem was it blew up every time we went over fifteen thousand revs, um, and that, that kind of carried into year two as well. I think that the, the car they built for ninety nine was probably the best car that they that they had. I had built. Uh, I think I spoke to Rubens about this not long ago, and he said that that that, that was the best car that he had driven uh, up until that point <laughs> of any cars he drove. But the '98 car was difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think that they went on to. I mean, not much more than a decade later, obviously become 
Red Bull via yeah. the Jaguar and they're dominating, taking four championships. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, uh, we were looking, uh, he said, obviously losing a seat was a, a huge disappointment, but did, can you confirm if you tested for Benetton in 99? Cause uh, there's talk of it, but there, there's no confirmation. So might get no. an exclusive. I can confirm that I uh, was reserve driver. I, I immediately, when I was, uh, Fired from Stewart's, became reserve driver for Benetton, for, for Benetton, but I never drove the car. I had a seat fitting, but never drove the car. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I've got another question for you. I mean, just about the, we're talking about obviously the 90s in general, but obviously everyone knows you know, Michael Schumacher, but how about maybe an underrated driver? Having been there on the grid, who do you think was maybe the, the most underrated driver of, of that era? Uh... Well, I want to say Rubens. I don't think Rubens got the, uh, the credit that he deserves. Mm. Uh, he obviously went to Ferrari and had a, a great time there, except for being up against Schumacher. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but I do think that he, uh, he, like I said earlier, you know, he was not at all on my radio, radar before. I totally underestimated how good he was. Uh, but... Um, uh, it was a, actually, to be honest, it was a little bit of a shock how fast he was over a, a, a single lap. Um, and he was hardworking, and but, uh, I think if anybody deserved more in, at that particular time, especially his time before Ferrari, uh, I think Rubens deserved a lot more credit for how great he was. Ah, definitely. I mean, I agree. And as you say, you went over to the you went over to the US. You had a really successful sports car career. Um, after Formula One, um, and if anybody wants to hear that, please go and listen to our other podcast that we did with you when you when you go into a huge amount of detail about that career. It's it, it, yeah. it, it's a it's a great career you've had, and it's that you were only you were only still you only racing only last week, you know, the yeah. weekend with 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 good Kevin. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think unfortunately that is all we have time for today. Right. So yeah, and I just want to thank you so much for uh, for coming on to the, for the program and uh, thank you for telling us your stories. I think the, the, the Nigel Mansell story about having part of his body broken yeah. black belt probably is probably going to stick with us for a while. Yeah, um, if it was his hand or his foot or something. <laughs> I know he had to break a board to get the black belt and uh, he, I, I think he broke it, but he also broke his hand or foot. <laughs> I can imagine how Ron reacted to that. <laughs> oh, no. no. Not well. <laughs> Uh, James, thank you so much for joining me as well uh, as ever. Another fellow James, thank you for joining me on the show again today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank Brilliant. you. Well, as I, as I say, unless I'm much mistaken, I am much mistaken. That is the end of the show. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out and away we go. Sports Social Podcast Network.